the best of our knowledge, explores topics on learning, education, and research. Coming up, universities across New York State studying AI could band together to unlock the potential of technology to benefit the public good. We'll speak with a researcher who's been working with AI in the classroom. And 2023 was the warmest year on record. We'll learn more from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. I'm Lucas Willard, host of The Best of Our Knowledge. You're listening to The Best of Our Knowledge. I'm Lucas Willard. Artificial intelligence technology is rapidly advancing, and the race is on for colleges and universities to unlock its full potential. As part of Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul's state budget proposal, New York is seeking to create a consortium of private and public universities to accelerate the development of AI for the public good. The so-called Empire AI Consortium will include Columbia University, Cornell University, New York University, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, the State University of New York, the City University of New York, and the Simons Foundation. One professor at the State University of New York at Albany is researching how K-12 students and teachers can use AI in the classroom. Dr. Hazel Bay is an assistant professor in UAlbany's Department of Educational Theory and Practice and received her Ph.D. at Indiana University, Bloomington. I spoke with Dr. Bay to learn more about her work to develop AI curricula that began in a classroom environment in Indiana. We wanted to develop this curriculum to foster AI literacy because we wanted to uh, introduce these ideas of how AI can affect their daily lives from social media to agriculture that was in Indiana because it, it was rural Indiana and also discuss the ethical aspects of AI and emphasizing issues like bias, privacy, fairness, um, intellectual um, you know, uh, properties, stuff like that. So we wanted to talk about that in the classroom. And then we wanted to make sure that the contents that we are creating are you know, interesting and relevant to the local, you know, it was in rural uh, schools. So we brought some, you know, what kind of factories are there? What do, do your parents do? We wanted to make sure that it touches their minds and, you know, their interests. So it was really fun and interesting project. You hear a lot about media literacy, social media literacy, and now there's the, I guess, the emerging area of AI literacy because young people are clued in. They are on their devices. They're on social media. They're using the web probably more than you and I are in a lot of our parts of our daily and our downtime. So... They've had, they may have had a lot of experience with AI and they don't know it. Um, so why do you think that this is a, a, an important mission in, in, in reaching young people and talking about not only how AI can be relevant to their learning and their potential careers, but also in their day-to-day lives? Exactly. So as you just said, they... I, I also have a young child, too, and then it seems like they're born with the technology. They don't even have to think about 
what is AI because it's so natural to them. But then the issue is AI is not visible. It's not something tangible that they can notice. Like, hi, this is AI. It it doesn't do that on their app. So we wanted to introduce idea intentionally in the classroom format so that they can learn just like math and science, but also AI. But um, at this point, the advancement of AI is so rapid. There is not a uh, curriculum or structure that the teachers can pursue at this point. So we wanted to make sure we can support the teachers and you know in the classroom and to make sure you know how to introduce those ideas early on so they know how AI works and how it can affect their each clicking <laughs> in their app. I remember when I was in middle school learning how to use a search engine. <laughs> in my, I don't know, in my middle school, I did take a class that actually talking about search engines and how to use and and or and comma and, you know, stuff like that. And there was even a competition about how to search certain information fast. And I actually did win the prize, I remember now. So it's very similar to that, I guess. But then it's more... I feel like it's more deep and more pervasive in this, um, you know, everyday life. That's why we, you know, it is important to introduce to them early on. And so now there's going to be this effort by New York State, which is going to expand on that, really, that mission of unlocking AI for the public good and, and learning more about it so it can be used in a good way and not in a malicious way or a damaging way. Um, in any kind of arena. How do you view this sort of statewide cooperation that includes the University at Albany uh, and all of these professionals coming together? Why do you see that as a benefit? Because it is the, you know, the largest cluster higher in the university, and I am one of the cluster higher, and it's 27 new hires, and there are um, existing faculty already using AI technology in their work. So there are you know, it's a interdisciplinary um, effort. And so it's even from Department of Philosophy or Arts and Education, cybersecurity, and, you know, of course, computer science, political science even. So I thought this uh, collaboration can expand our interests, our research efforts, even and even teaching to something that we never really noticed like what you know, each department, each program is doing and how we can collaborate to you know, meet that gaps that we are noticing. So a lot of conversations are going on about you know, to learn about what each uh, department or, or which uh, researcher is doing and then to see how um, we can work together to make something meaningful for the, the society. Because you know, when you see the life and society, it's it's not just one sector. It's always the combination of something. And especially with AI, I think the idea comes from, um, at least to me, it seems like, so what is AI? And how AI is so different from human? Then it comes down to even think about then what is human? So there are a lot of questions that we want to answer. And to answer those very deep, complex questions, we want to sit together you know, from different perspectives and then think together, you know, to answer these questions because these do tend to entail a lot of, I don't know, complex ideas. Absolutely. And 
we've talked about how curriculum can or should be designed to help young people learn more about the effects of AI. But what about for older adults and for people who may not be as tech savvy as young people? Certainly there's room for uh, education and, and, and AI literacy there as well. That is a great point. So I am one of my research project is to interview the teachers who are teaching AI. And then they, they're saying very interesting to me that even though, you know, the kid, the students are accepting the, the AI idea and the activities really well. But then some, t- some parents are saying like, um, I don't want my kid to learn AI just yet because AI is scary. But then the parent is using like Spotify or in Netflix on their phone, but not realizing they're actually utilizing the AI technology. So um, it is really important to um, find a good way to bridge that gap between the young generations and the, like you said, adults, like parents and community members. Um, so actually another line of my research is to reach out to local like libraries or community colleges to develop another you know, workshop or some crash courses that can you know talk to those adults as well so it's kind of a but then it's just happening so quickly <laughs> so um it's just uh, not fast enough to i feel like catch up with all those um, um plans but that is uh, going on so the technology is evolving and improving so rapidly <laughs> it's hard to even once you have something nailed down about what you want to communicate to someone who's completely unfamiliar with ai uh, you're already left in the dust. Exactly. And especially with the adults, it is uh, more challenging because we all come with some bias or prejudice about something. And then like, no, that's not, then I don't know. It's hard to change the preconceptions, I feel like. So I uh, in in our uh, summer camp program, we, we do start with this activity. It's called AI versus not AI. And then we have to categorize it you know each uh, subject or object is is using AI feature or not and then it's really fun conversation because sometimes we do get confused like wait is this AI or not um what makes AI or not AI so um and I think that will be a great conversation to start even with the with adults too do you have any ideas about where AI could be potentially helpful. There's a lot of discussion about how it's harmful, but are there any particular industries or applications that maybe you're experiencing in your day-to-day life where you feel AI could or is already being helpful? Um, In education, a lot of adaptive and personalized learning management systems are already being used for students and AI-driven grading, feedback systems, and also AI chatbots for, you know, service for the business. And also a lot of um, medical fields are using AI technology to, you know, pre-diagnose for cancer, um, stuff like that. So we are learning all these different um, ideas that utilize AI technology. And it is really, really meaningful and fun for me to gather all those examples from this uh, uh this uh, consortium and then 
in, and kind of translate into K-12 language to introduce all these great examples how AI is, user, is utilized to you know, middle school or high school or you know, even elementary. So I feel like my job in, in this uh, initiative is to translate this you know, high-tech, um, very complex ideas into something that is tangible and concrete to understand for K-12 teachers and sometimes even for our community members. Have you run into the issue of anybody using ChatGPT to write their assignments yet? Um, so that's always the question that I always get. It's funny because um, um, sometimes I do ask <laughs> directly, like, did you use whenever I... I don't know. It's such, such a... It's just, uh, I don't know. It's such a big, like, trust issue, I feel like. And I want to say I have big trust in my class, in my uh, students. So I don't really ask that questions. But I did... Uh, panel discussion something like this about AI in high school and one of the students did ask me about that um, hey so I did use AI um, chat GPT for my essay and you know is it okay and I said well how much did you use what prompts did you use did you use it to summarize your work or did, did you use it to submit your work you know what uh, what did you do? And then she was very honest. I just wanted to uh, summarize my work, but then I didn't do X, Y, Z. I don't know. So the the discussion went on and on. And then we ended up with, we, you know, this school or this class needs to have a AI policy. What is okay? What is not okay? Um, how transparent should we be? You know, lots of questions to answer, but that was a great start. Um, of you know thinking about AI and then it is definitely going on like it it's really funny that the students actually think about it first now I'm, I'm sure teachers thought about it too but it was nice that students brought it up first and they asked about it and even one student brought up like I also used the image generation um, for my art class and then my dream my job in my dream job is to become a uh, you know illustrator or something, and then is this like if AI generates with my prompts, is it mine or AI's? Can I get paid through it? Oh my god, I was impressed how del you know like delicate and like complex questions that they already have in their mind, and are we ready? Are we adults ready to answer these? So. Maybe, yeah, we do need to think, think uh, maybe I should think about how to approach this conversation to adults too. <laughs> now I realize it more. So what will you be uh, teaching this semester? Are you looking forward to any classroom or coursework uh, in the coming months uh, with regards to emerging technologies like AI? So um, I just started last semester, but we um, we partnered with one local school district in Albany, and we did survey the whole uh, district student uh, teachers about how prepared they are to teach about AI or use AI or even talk about AI to their students. We got really great response, and we are ready to deep down, you know. To that topic by interviewing more 
teachers and maybe even some students, and then we will develop、um, professional development programs to you know talk about those. But then I also am designing a introduction to AI in education course. Um, so a lot of K twelve teachers will be taking these courses in summer. That's gonna be in summer, and also in U Albany we are creating a webinar series that does that's going to talk about something about these that we just talked about. So lots of efforts are going on. We are trying to reach more you know broader community teachers, students, and even community members. You know,、uh, or leaders. So、uh, I think it's really exciting time. I am really lucky to be in this、uh, time, so I can have more, you know, attention and more resources and great collaborative efforts around, you know, this topic. So I am very happy to be in this, you know, like movement. I want. I want to say. Dr. Hazel Bay is an assistant professor in the University at Albany's Department of Educational Theory and Practice. You're listening to the best of our knowledge. I'm Lucas Willard. This is the best of our knowledge. 2023 was a year of weather extremes and high temperatures. Last year, the United States saw a longer and more devastating wildfire season, massive rainfall and flash flooding events, and an uptick in severe hurricanes. This month, NASA and NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, released their annual Global Climate Report for 2023. Detailing the hottest year on planet Earth since recordkeeping began, climate scientist and public affairs specialist at NOAA, Tom DiLaberto, spoke with the best of our knowledge's Jody Cowan to break down the data from this year's record-breaking report. 2023 is going to go down in the record books as the warmest year on record for both the NOAA and NASA datasets. The NOAA datasets goes all the way back to 1850. And this record wasn't broken by a little bit either. It was broken by a lot. 2023 is by far the warmest year in our record. I often struggle just to get a temperature reading on like my kid's forehead as they're sitting on my lap. How do we go about collecting an average temperature of the planet? That's a great question. So we have weather stations on land and also buoys in the ocean. We have ships. We have airplanes. We also have satellites in space that are all monitoring. Everything that's going on on our planet, and it's actually a worldwide group、um, made up of an international collaboration with the United States and everywhere else that basically monitors our planet and gives in information into one、um, individual area. And then scientists take all that data and they combine it to create a data set that covers the entire globe. 2023, we saw a lot of extreme weather events. What were some of the impacts of climate change, and what can we expect to kind of hit the country here, and maybe where our offices are here in the Northeast? So, 2023 was marked by extreme heat waves in lots of parts of the planet, but also incredibly heavy rainfall, led flash flooding in the Northeast, especially. But 
even when it comes to wildfires. Now, you may not think about wildfires much where you are, but I think this last summer, we all understood the impacts of the smoke of wildfires. As wildfires that happened in Canada blew smoke all the way across the middle and eastern part of the country, leading to horrible air quality and those burnt red skies, even the middle part of the day. Now, that's not to say that's going to happen next year, but climate change is certainly making our planet warmer. And what that does is it tends to leave there being more extremes when it comes to temperature, so hotter temperatures, longer heat waves, but also gives the potential for there being heavier precipitation events. Or on the flip side, if it doesn't rain, it could lead to there being drought, which could lead to there being more conditions more conducive for wildfires. So climate change and hotter temperatures are all things that could lead to those extremes increasing. According to NOAA's annual climate and weather disaster report, 2023 was a costly one when looking at some of the effects of this here. Uh, What else can you tell us about this report and the drastic difference between this year and years in the past? So 2023 set the record for the United States for the most billion-dollar weather and climate disasters. 28 separate events happened during 2023 that cost over $1 billion. Um, In fact, the total number for the entire year is over $90 billion worth of damage. Now, when we talk about extreme events that cause these sorts of damages, we're talking about things like severe weather, but also flash flooding and coastal storms, both tropical hurricanes, as well as nor'easters leading to coastal flooding up and down the East Coast. Drought could also lead to these big impacts. So if you take a look at the United States last year, barely any part of the country didn't feel something when it came to some sort of extreme event. Does the information gathered in these reports address what's affecting the climate change, what's causing this? So climate change is being caused by human emissions of greenhouse gases. Essentially, all of the warming that we've seen since um, humans started burning fossil fuels is due to um, our burning of fossil fuels. Exactly that. Now, um, when it comes to these billion-dollar disasters, there's also another human element that's beyond that goes beyond climate change. Also, the fact that we're building more things in areas that could potentially be impacted by climate change or by impacted by weather extremes and climate extremes. So if you have a hurricane making landfall along a coastline, it's a big difference in terms of how much damage is done when it's uh, making landfall in an area with not a lot of human development versus an area with a lot of human development. So there's kind of these double-sided sort of impacts when we're talking about these extremes. Not only is climate change making some of these extremes worse, but also uh, we humans tend to be building things in places that uh, can lead to there being damages when these extremes happen. What kind of action steps are NOAA taking to address some of these climate issues? So NOAA is doing an absolute ton of work on building what we call climate resilience, basically saying that we know extremes happen. We know that some extremes will be getting worse. So how can we make it so that our communities across the entire country and across the world can be better prepared for when these extremes happen, but also be able to bounce back after they occur. There's no way you can necessarily stop these events from happening, but there is a way of dealing with them and be able to minimize their impacts as best we can. But more importantly, when these impacts do happen, be able to bring and help people back up and get on their feet after the events. You're a well-regarded public speaker on weather and climate and have written about the increase in global temperature trends for a while now. Do you feel like your message is getting across? Should we be more alarmed here? And maybe more importantly, will we be seeing more YouTube videos from you uploaded in 2024? We'll see. I have two little kids, so we'll see if they let me have some time to do some YouTube videos. I have a lot of hope on climate change and us dealing with it. The one thing to know is that we we have all the solutions. We know the answer to climate change, which is reducing our emissions of greenhouse gases to zero as quick as possible. And we know how to do that. And one amazing thing that I would say that whenever I talk about climate change, it's always something that people are very interested in. They come to me to talk about it, and there's a lot of passion. And especially among the youth um, of America and of the world, it's 
It's amazing to be able to interact with um, people who care so much about the planet, but they care so much about their communities. And I think that's where this all starts is at the community level, being able to talk to people, your neighbors, your your friends or or anyone in so your church or wherever it may be, and to talk about climate change. And I, I have to say that um, when I talk about it now, it's it's something that goes beyond me just talking about it happening. It's all about how can we can solve it and how we can help uh, make that change. We're speaking to you now from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. I'm curious as to what upcoming Earth science missions may be taking place that you're really excited about in your office. Sure. So the GOES-U geostationary satellite is going to be launched in April. Now, in order to forecast the weather or have any idea about how our planet's changing, you need to have eyes and ears everywhere. And that includes up in space looking down at us. So um, the GOES-U satellite is a joint NASA-NOAA um, collaboration that's going to go up in April. And that's basically going to revolutionize or continue to improve our ability to understand and see what's happening on our planet. And that helps from giving weather forecasters a better idea about where a tornado or um, a hurricane might make landfall to us being able to determine where changes are happening on our planet to be able to understand um, the risks of climate change. That's pretty cool. I was reading about a prepared launch of a new satellite, the Plankton Aerosol Cloud Ocean Ecosystem, or the PACE, in just a few weeks that will help to shed new light on the health of the atmosphere and the ocean specifically. What should we know about this mission and how does this fit into your workload? PACE is, a, is such an important project because while we're talking about satellites, we tend to think of satellites, we think of clouds, right? But satellites can also help us give a better idea about the biological makeup of our planet, how ecosystems are changing, how ecosystems are being impacted, and especially those in our ocean. And beginning a better idea how that is changing and working can help lead to scientists get a better idea about the overall health of our entire planet. Because we know that on Earth, um, everything is interconnected. Uh, whether it's from our atmosphere to the land to the ocean and the people and places and the animals that live in all those places are all connected. So being able to figure out the health of all of that will help us all um, in the end. Turning to some of the kind of climate headlines of the day, um, I was hearing reports that we're currently in a strong El Nino. Uh, can you explain what El Nino is and its impacts on global temperatures? So an El Nino refers to this warming of the waters in the central and eastern uh, tropical Pacific Ocean, right along the equator there. Now, you might be thinking, how the heck is that going to impact what's going on across the United States? Well, um, when an El Nino happens, it's kind of like the first domino to fall atmospherically, which can lead to this uh, effect, which could eventually affect where the jet stream sets up across the United States. Now, the jet stream is that area of fast moving winds, 30 to 40,000 feet in the atmosphere where planes fly. But think of it more like a storm highway. So if you can change where that storm highway is set up, you can change where those storms go. So El Nino basically can extend that jet stream, especially across the southern tier of the United States, which can lead to there being more precipitation across that part of the country. Meanwhile, um, places further to the north, let's say in the northwest United States, can lead to there being less precipitation. Now, across the northeast, um, occasionally it can also mean there being an increase in the number of uh, storms coming up these coasts, as it refers to nor'easters, um, which if if you're a big fan of snow, is that's one thing that you know you you would like that to, to happen. But um, we also know that when we have these, it's by no means a guarantee that we're going to see more snowfall in a given year because um, we all know that the temperature plays a really important role in whether that precipitation falls as rain or snow. Tom DiLiberto is a climate scientist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. He spoke with the best of our knowledges, Jody Cowan.
This has been The Best of Our Knowledge, episode 1739. The Best of Our Knowledge is a national production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. Thanks to associate producer Jody Cowan. The latest on all national productions programs is available via the Airwaves newsletter and our flagship station's website, wamc.org. Until next time, I'm Lucas Willard.